This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 5.11 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 5.11tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 5.11tactical.com, and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 511 Tactical, you can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 422 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Jesse Simpson and Dan Jarvis. Now, Jesse and Dan are both military veterans. They are both retired first responders and also a member of the team at 22-0, which is using TRP to address the suicide and PTSD epidemic that we see in our professions. So we cover a host of topics from their own powerful stories that led them to their own mental health crisis 
how TRP helped each and every one of them and how they are now spreading the word and trying to get this incredible treatment to every other person who needs it. So before we get to this conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly elevates this project, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 420 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Jesse Simpson and Dan Jarvis. Enjoy. So Jesse and Dan, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the show. I know we were going to sit down face to face and then we ended up doing it remotely. Um, So thank you for your flexibility and welcome to the podcast. Thanks James for having us. Yeah, James, appreciate it very much. Thank you, brother. Right. So first question, we'll start with you, Jesse. Where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am in Lakeland, Florida at a co-working space where I I was fortunate enough to meet Dan. And uh, yeah, Lakeland, Florida is my new home. Beautiful. And Dan, you're just down the road? Yep, just down the road. I'm actually in the same building. We're uh, in the same co-working space. Excellent. Okay, fantastic. So I'd like to start at the very beginning. So Dan, tell me about your family dynamic, where you were born, and what your mom and dad did. Uh, family dynamics. I was actually born in Mobile, Alabama. I was a Navy brat. My dad was stationed uh, in Mobile. And siblings, I've got um, two sisters and one brother. Uh, we lost one brother um, early on to cystic fibrosis, and one of my sisters now lives in Australia, of all places. So, um, my father's career was was like I said, Navy he did twenty two years, and that was kind of my act of rebellion out of high school. Was I decided I was going to join the army, but uh, he took it a lot better than I thought he would. <laughs> what did your parents do for a living? Um, my father was career Navy, and then when he retired from the Navy, he became a bailiff. So he worked uh, providing security at a courtroom in in Polk County, Florida. And my mother, she was she was uh, she was a real worker of the family. She was a stay at home mom. Beautiful. And then what about athletics? Were you a sportsman when you were young? Oh, I was definitely football and wrestling was my things. And then um, after leaving high school, I got into judo, and I did competitive judo for for quite a while. Excellent. All right. Well, as I'm sure you guys are aware, being in this space, as I have, you know, kind of immersed myself in this project, and obviously mental health is a big part of overall health, the role of childhood trauma and a lot of, you know, mental health struggles later in life really seems to be a huge, huge element. So when you look back now, being, you know, the other side of the journey that you've been on, was there any element of that in your own childhood? Um, I would say definitely yes. Um, I've done a lot of work in the mental health world as far as self-work. And I've deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. I spent 27 months in the Middle East and I spent about seven years as a law enforcement officer. But yeah, I would say the most significant trauma was when I was 11. So most definitely. Right. Is that something you want to expand on? Um, Not particularly. It was uh, some things that occurred that I had zero control over. And that just kind of really set the tone for my whole path. You know, I I decided I was going to go into, um, into 
areas where I could help other people and to contribute to other people. Uh, and we find that very commonly with a lot of the work that we're doing now. Many of the veterans and first responders have those adverse childhood experiences. Uh, but some of it was, you know, alcoholism with my father and there was some domestic violence in the home, but then there was some stuff that happened outside. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, that's, I would say, obviously not everyone comes on to tell a mental health story. So a lot of my guests are, you know, coaches and nutritionists and, you know, all, all walks of life. But I would say, I think it's about 25% at least of my guests have had significant childhood trauma. And that might be sexual abuse, physical abuse, being around drugs, murder, or even, even, still significant to them but being the middle child and and you know the the first child was adored this the third one was you know the daughter that I always wanted and the second one was kind of you know abandoned emotionally so it and i think that you know this professional our associated professions draw people in aid so they can be the protector and kind of you know stop the buck there but i think the other side i see is it also fills that void it creates noise so they don't have to think about the things they went through when they were younger absolutely all right well jesse over to you same question where were you born and tell me about your family dynamic yeah so i was born in san diego california my dad was in the navy so i was born out there a navy brat or whatever i don't remember any of it though i moved when i was two years old to iowa which is where my parents grew up and where they're from so I grew up mostly in Des Moines, Iowa, and um, my dynamics goes, I mean, I don't remember much of that. I, I had an older brother um, that was there in a lot of the family videos that I watched, but then my, my parents got divorced when I was seven years old, and I think that played a big role, a big, I mean, it was a huge thing in my life. I didn't realize it until like 20 years later, how much of an impact it had on me, but um, parents got split up when I was seven, and I was, I was thinking just about my mom the other day, actually. My mom got divorced, and then my um, and then she, she she was an oncology nurse. She quit her job to open a childcare. She became a single mom of four kids, so she opened up this childcare. And then right after that, my older brother got cancer when he was so he was fourteen. He got cancer for the first time. So I was just seeing my mom just two days ago about how much she went through in that time, and it just um, kind of opened my mind up to that. Um, my my dad moved from Iowa to, to Arkansas, so. He, we saw him once every six weeks. So he kind of, um, he's always, he's always there. He's actually why we moved to Lakeland. Um, but he, when I was growing up, he was just out of the state. So I didn't see him as often as I needed to. And I, I struggled a lot as a kid. Uh, I, I was in and out of, out of school for smoking weed, cussing out teachers, skipping class. Um, I was fortunate enough, fortunate enough, actually seventh grade was a huge year for me. Seventh grade, I was, it was when I was in seventh grade on nine eleven. And ever since 9-11, I wanted to be a Marine and a firefighter. So that played a huge impact on my life. I was also introduced to my first mentor. His name was Mr. Blue. And he worked at my school as a juvenile court officer. And he was uh, just a, a guy that gave a shit and took us out to the YMCA to lift weights and, and do something outside of, out of school. Kept us out of trouble. He's like the first guy that I can remember that like, cared about me. They saw something in me. Um, but also in seventh grade, I, the summer before seventh grade, before the mentor and 9-11 happened, I was suicidal. So I was a really misguided kid. I had no positive role models. My, my, my brother at this point, he has pancreatic cancer. My mom's struggling in her business. We filed for bankruptcy three times when, when we were growing up. And uh, just like, I didn't have, I didn't feel loved. I didn't feel like anybody cared about me. Um, I didn't have the intention. It was all going to the business or to my brother um, and, or uh, two younger kids, my brother and sister. So after a fight with my mom, 
I went up one night to, or after a fight with my mom, went up to my bedroom one time and put a butcher knife into my wrist and just sort of dug in and, and you know, completely depleted and, and just wish I was dead. And um, that has always stuck with me, you know, since then. And I, this will probably come back in later in the story, but I realized that I was, when I was 28 years old and the same suicidal thoughts came up when I was a firefighter, firefighter of the year in Arizona, I was repeating the same cycles that I had started when I was in seventh grade as a seventh grade boy, a troubled kid um, looking to die. And I was able to break that cycle, but Mr. Blue kept me out of trouble. I moved forward. The the Marine, uh, the 9-11 gave me a a sort of a calling. I sense a purpose. Like, I don't know what I want to do with my life, but I know I want to be a Marine and a firefighter. And it was because of seven that triggered it all. And it kept me, it kept me going. Um, but I still continued to get in trouble. I remember one of the last events with Mr. Blue, he took me and three other boys to the downtown juvenile court detention center in the town where I grew up. And it was a scare tactic sort of tour trip, field trip saying like, you're going to end up here if you don't clean up your act. And at the end of that, the judge, we sat in front of a judge, there's three of us boys and he lectured us for a while and told us about what that looks like. And then at the end, he pointed the first boy and he said, you'll be dead by the time you turn 18. He pointed the second boy. He said, you'll be in jail. And then he pointed to the third boy and he said, you have a chance to write your own story, write a new story. And so I don't know what happened to those other boys, but I believe I'm here because I'm, I'm able to write a new story. And it's so incredible how it's now intertwined with, with Dan and how we've met here now and came together with you, James. Um, but as far as my childhood goes, Mr. Blue was laid off not long after that field trip. My freshman year, I ended getting thrown out of my mom's house um, and, and, and moved away to a new high school, new city. And really it was a really traumatic thing to experience. Uh, my mom said, you know, call your dad. You're not welcome here anymore. And as this troubled kid in and out of school, didn't feel like anybody cared about me to hear my own mom say that, that um, like really shook me to the core. But um, it was probably one of the best things that could happen to me because I got to a new school, new city. And, um, I was able to graduate early from high school and, and do my thing in the Marines. So that, that event saved my life. But that's, that kind of sums up my childhood. My, my brother struggling, my mom filed for bankruptcy, and then I was in out of trouble myself and eventually was kicked out. Wow. See, and it's amazing the depth that you know, so many stories I have. You know, these, these people that walk among us, these young people that walk among us, what they've been through. Even my little boy, we had some mental health issues with him and nothing even that significant but the way it was completely mishandled by his school they were funneling kids into the local psych facility so while he was there on his you know baker act hold that was completely unwarranted um there was probably five kids from his middle school that were sent to the same thing so rather than you know these teachers dealing with it as you said being the mr blues being the mentors and just seeing that some kids are struggling they just funneled through a pipeline of, you know, not my problem, send them to this facility and lock them away and take their shoelaces for three days. So it's it really underlines the power of being present, you know, looking around for people that are hurting and, and being a mentor, not just shipping them off to some other facility. Absolutely, James. I think it's it's so important. I think the idea of having a coach or a mentor or someone who cares about you is is so important, especially for, for kids. But even for adults, I mean, even if, as a mentor, if I'm struggling and I have someone that, that I, that's looking up to me, like that, the relationship 
that's formed from that, it, it goes both ways. And it's, it's, it's like what we need, I believe, to move forward in the world and actually give these people the relief they need. Otherwise, they're, you know, these kids are just put in the system. They just become a part of the problem instead of part of the solution. And then there's just more problems instead of treating the symptoms instead of actually getting to the root and giving the people what they need, which in, in my eyes, especially for a kid, is someone who cares about them. Absolutely. All right. Well, Dan, over to you. Um, so tell me about your journey into the military then. Like I said, uh, right as I was graduating high school, I was 17 years old and um, was really looking for a way to get out of the house. You know, I, I, I was a middle child. I didn't really, you know, I didn't really like living at home. You know, my dad gave me two choices. He said, you can start paying rent the day you graduate or you can join the military. And then it doggone well, I didn't want to pay rent to live there. So I went down, I said, well, I'll show my dad. And I, I went to talk with an army recruiter and the army recruiter says, well, you're 17. So I have to have parental permission. So I, I invited them to come over to the house when I knew both my parents were going to be there. And I hadn't yet told them I was joining the army and uh, the recruiter shows up in his class B uniform. My dad answers the door and he was just so pleasant and polite to the, to the recruiter. I was like, this isn't the guy I know, you know, and came in and, and he told the, uh, told my parents, Hey, I need, I need signatures from both of you. Cause your, your son wants to join the army. And he's not of legal age to to sign the document, so you both have to sign. And I can never I can never forget because my dad's like signing the papers, and my mom's literally like blubbering. And she's like, "I don't want him to join the army. You know, he could get hurt." And, my, and I can hear my dad like it was yesterday, "Shut up, Bonnie, and sign the damn paper." You know, and that was it. And then I joined the service. I did um, only did a two year stint right out of high school. We're talking circa nineteen eighty eight. And then I got out and uh, went to college, graduated uh, with a bachelor's in criminology. And then that's when I started my law enforcement journey and worked about four and a half years uh, in law enforcement um, after college. And, you know, and then I decided to go a little bit into the private sector. I was kind of getting burned out, not realizing that it's a lot of that childhood stuff just kind of builds up. And when you see or are exposed to some of the things that you're exposed to in a law enforcement capacity, I was kind of getting back to that breaking point. And I left law enforcement and then 9-11 happened. And I'm sitting there scratching my head. I'm either going to go back into law enforcement or I'm going to go back in the service. And I decided uh, to go back into the Army, uh, went back into the infantry. I was a, a ground pounder. I was a grunt. So I always wanted to do. And I couldn't see myself doing anything different when I went back and I went back in for another 10 years and was able to deploy um, to Iraq for 15 months and then Afghanistan for 12 months and then did a two year tour as a drill sergeant uh, at Fort Knox, Kentucky. Um, so I had a pretty, um, you know, the op tempo for my, my 10 year career was pretty, pretty intense. And, you know, when I found myself in Afghanistan, you know, it was a little bit of a different fight than what we were experiencing in Iraq. Iraq was very kinetic with a lot of direct head-to-head -head contact with, with enemy insurgency. But Afghanistan, it was very indirect. Uh, we, the, you really honestly could not tell who your enemy was. I mean, you're talking about um, most of the contact we had were IEDs and indirect fire. And during my Afghanistan deployment, half my, my squad, I was a squad leader, was medevaced out of Afghanistan uh, from injuries due to IED blasts. And then one of our kids was killed and I, I felt extremely responsible for his death. I was injured. I stepped on a uh, pressure plate 
uh, detonated an IED from about five feet away on a, on a dismounted patrol crossing the Tarnak River um, with an element of Afghanis and Americans. Um, I, had, I was pretty much sleep deprived after that IED event. And it was about three weeks after that when we lost Doug Cordo. Um, and the day we lost Doug, I was the truck commander for the lead striker. We were in a striker unit and we went off road. Uh, we were going to escort our explosives guys to link up with another uh, platoon up on a mountain to, to deactivate a mine that they had found. And when I heard the blast behind me in, in the convoy, that's when I realized that I missed uh, the IED. You know, in the lead the lead striker, my job was to safeguard the convoy. I was I was the the pressure cooker. I was the one to find things before we got to it. And so that really weighed extremely heavy on me. Um, and not only on that event did we get hit on that first uh, go round when we had to uh, tow the vehicle out. Uh, the vehicle got struck a second time. And it was a main gun system. It looked like a tank with with uh, eight wheels and just the the surreal nature of of combat uh, was was just you know it's kind of hard to really explain to people. You know we we experienced video games. That's what these kids nowadays see the the Call of Duty and and uh, you know there's absolutely nothing uh, glamorous about going to war because then you got to deal with the aftermath. And for me, at the end of the deployment, that's when I got the Red Cross notification uh, when I lost my mother. Uh, she she died of a massive heart attack. And I had about three weeks left in country and ended up going home uh, to go back to the funeral. My first sergeant was like, yeah, I'm, I'm taking this choice away from you. You're going. So I, I went and um, found myself uh, back in Alaska after the funeral services. And I was literally on a journey of self-destruction and self-medication that almost ended with my own suicide. Um, it was early uh, March of 2013 is when I was literally at the point where I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I wasn't married. I had no kids. I had nobody responsible for me. And I had a rifle in the corner of my room and I was about ready to, to, to pull the trigger. Uh, but fortunately, there was some kids that lived in the apartment above me. So when I heard them running across their, their floor or my ceiling, it just kind of... Um, shook me out of that for the moment because I didn't want to put a high powered uh, rifle round through a, you know, through the floor of, of an apartment building. I didn't, I didn't want to hurt a kid, you know? So I kind of, you know, just passed out that night, like most other nights. And then the next morning I get a phone call from Ryan, who was one of my riflemen uh, on the deployment. And one of the kids that was in the platoon I had just come out of had killed himself that same night. So uh, that really was kind of my wake up moment. You know, that, that week of preparation for memorial services and, and seeing what the impact of his suicide was on the men, I realized that that could not be my option. I didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that to my guys. I didn't want to put them through that. And, and, and more importantly, I didn't want to give them permission to do the same thing because uh, suicide from the veteran, you know, standpoint um, is, is significant, you know, e even in the active services, I think the DOD reported in 2018 that there was 541 active duty service members that ended their own lives. And in the veteran space, we're losing, you know, on average about 20 to 22 a day. Um, so the, the unit that I actually deployed to, to Afghanistan, we lost two men in combat, but we've lost five since coming home. So we're, we're losing more to suicide than we're losing um, on the battlefield. 
when and then you know, that's just kind of brought us to where we are right now when when um 9-11 of 2014 is is when the army said all right you know thank you for your service but we need your slot for somebody that's healthy because you know by that time i had like three surgeries and with all the self-medication with with alcohol the the uh, doctor said you know you're you're now a type 2 diabetic and you know my world began to change again but you know that's i got out of service and 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 said you know what i'm, I'm going to go right back to back to that old uniform again so i went back through the police academy and became a deputy sheriff again and uh then i went i did about two more years as a deputy sheriff i got vested in the florida retirement system and my wife and i had the conversation and you know, realize at the time I'm, I'm 44 years old doing foot chases with 18 year old meth addicts through wooded areas. And I realized this is, this is a, this is a young man's game. So, um, I opted to go ahead and put in papers retired and, and that's when things started spiraling out of control again, because that idle mind is truly the devil's playground. And all of the nightmares came back, all of the, the bad thoughts would pop into my head when I didn't want, want them. And that's when my journey really began looking for, for solutions uh, for PTSD because I was never labeled PTSD until I went to the VA. And when I sat down with the VA uh, psychiatrist, you know, he did the evaluation and I didn't even get the diagnosis until like my second uh, counseling session with the VA psychologist. And he said that they diagnose you with post-traumatic stress disorder with major depressive disorder. And the only thing I heard in that conversation was disorder, disorder twice. And I'm like, I'm not looking for labels. I'm looking, I'm looking for solutions. Um, and I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with the, the VA's main protocol for treatment is there's two, two basic things that they use. They use what's called prolonged exposure and cognitive processing therapy. And they both involve a lot of conversation and talk. Now the exposure is designed. They, it's 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 supposed to be like an extinction. They're they're trying to um, desensitize you and render that um, event kind of an extinct as not as not happened, but not feeling as as intense. And what I found was, you know, talking about the trauma from beginning to end was really reactivating the traumatic feelings. You know, my, my physiology would change, my breathing would change, my blood pressure would change. And every time I would come back from treatment, I was getting worse. And my wife was concerned because she said that I was getting worse. And nightmares were getting more intense and more vivid and more real. And I would wake up and my sheets would be literally soaking wet. Like one morning she wakes up and she accused me of not taking a shower. And I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, there's sand all over the pillow. And what it was is I had sweat so much that salt crystals had formed on the pillowcase. So that's how intense. I mean, I'm literally doing cardio in my sleep. Um, the VA canceled a couple of appointments. Uh, after the second appointment, they canceled an appointment. And I couldn't get in for another four weeks. And then I went back. And then they canceled the, the one after that. Um, the psychologist had to go to a, psych, a conference. And I couldn't get scheduled for another eight weeks. And that was it for the VA. And then I started looking outside the VA for solutions, trying to use uh, the EAP for my wife's work, you know, I went through uh, EMDR, I went through accelerated resolution therapy. And, and then by chance, I found myself in Albuquerque, New Mexico, of all places. And it was a nonprofit out there that was finishing up their research. And 
you know, they were making claims of 90, 90% success, you know, with, with a very short period of time. And so I'm like, yeah, okay. I've, I've been traumatized for quite a long time and you're making some, some claims and I've been through some other things and I'm not, I'm not quite buying it. So I told the trainer, I said, look, I said, if, if I'm going to use this, cause I had started 22 zero, um, in April of 2018 and this is like September and I was like, if I'm going to rec- recommend this to anybody, you know, with these claims that you guys are making, I want to experience it. So he invited me at that point to do a session that day. And then he invited me to do the session in front of the class. So then I sat up in front of a class of 25 mental health counselors and was basically his test dummy for the class to watch it. And I can say with 100% honesty, I was done after about 45 minutes. And I remember looking over at the trainer and I'm like, what kind of Jedi stuff is this? Because I was now able to tell a story that I couldn't talk about and I didn't have the emotions associated with it. And what it, what it stems from is there's some processes called neuro-linguistic programming. And uh, there's a, a Bander and Grindler were two of the pioneers of the NLP work and they worked together probably mid seventies and into the eighties. And they developed this process called visual kinesthetic disassociation. And what these treatments do is they allow you to visually and the, the visual part is to see things from a different perspective. They use visual formatting like pictures, you know, a uh, start point and draining color and, black and white imagery. And then now you're watching yourself in a disassociated context. So you're more comfortable and, and all that is required is a, a sympathetic reaction, a trigger. And then once the trigger fires on the trauma, they get you out of that and they don't want you to go back into it. And then at the very end, you do a rewind process rapidly from the end of the beginning. And it sounds crazy because that's exactly what I told them. I said, this sounds like, like really crazy stuff. But when you get to the rewind part, the brain where the memory is being stored for the traumas in your amygdala, that's your fight or flight, which is your base human instinct of survival and procreation. So the trauma stays in your amygdala. It does. The emotion continues to be attached to it and your brain doesn't process it. And a lot of that is because of self-medication and sleep deprivation. Those are probably two of the biggest factors to prevent the emotions from uh, reconsolidating. And then what the process does is allows the emotion to split away from the event. So now as you tell the event, you don't have that fear, terror, or helplessness that's associated with it. So an event where I was, you know, a 10 on a zero to 10 scale and 45 minutes, I'm like a one and able to tell the story with, without any emotional complexities. And it's like, just, it was such a bizarre feeling. And and when I got back to Florida, I went, I literally went through like three or four more sessions with one of the counselors that had just finished the training. And I got rid of all of it. I, I have nothing left. You know, I, I don't like to talk about the childhood stuff because it's one of those things that's like, I'm not giving it the time of day. But when, when I finished all of this work and the memories were reconsolidated, the nightmares disappeared, the intrusive thoughts disappeared, the feelings of that helplessness or that terror was gone, wasn't even present. And just like that story I could tell about Doug, you know, before I would have been an emotional wreck, you know, because the, that survivor's guilt was heavy, extremely heavy to know that, 
you know, I might have been a contributing part of of him not making it home. So, you know, and then the 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 22 year old that killed himself um, in Alaska, you know, I I credit Corey with saving my life, and it was unfortunately when he took his own, and that's why we pushed so hard to to get into this space and to 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 provide real solutions for the men and women who put a uniform on for a purpose bigger than self because you know not only do we deal with veterans and active military you know we're talking national guard enlisted reserves you know we work with anybody that's works in corrections law enforcement firefighters paramedics um and then with the onset of, of everything with the covid we we've added you know doctors and nurses that work in those emergency medical settings uh, to our mission set um, and it is pretty cool because we we gauge our return on investment by the success of the treatments. And what we did is we we modeled that visual kinesthetic. We we went to one of the original founders of it who lives in the UK. Um, his name is Grinder. We told him what we were doing, and he was like, "Go forth and heal," you know. And and not only was that, he was a uh, he was an army veteran as well. He was in United States Army Special Forces during the Cold War as a captain. Uh, he's a, a linguist, so. We've just been pushing forward as, as, as rapidly as we can. We don't use any content in our process. We call it the tactical resiliency process. And then we also use another process for negative emotions called the emotions management process. And I mean, it's like a, a one-two punch. You know, you could take a, a trauma and you can literally shut off that fight or flight. So, you know, when you're traumatized, it's not the, the event that's the problem. It's the emotion that attaches to it. And I think anybody who's been exposed to trauma understands it's it's not the visual it's the feeling that that plagues us so when you see that you have the ability to to separate those two and to allow somebody to basically turn off that light switch you're turning off the the fight or flight response and then they're back to sleeping normally and getting off of their medications and not having panic attacks anymore or you know in one case we had a police officer out in salt lake city who we got trained to do the process worked with his cousin who was having 25 to 30 um, seizures a day related to traumas. We refer to as psychosomatic, you know, her therapist had given up on her. So he worked with her with the process. And, you know, last I heard she was only having one seizure a day. Of course, she still has more work to do with her, but, you know, or, or a mom that reaches out and says, Hey, you know, I heard you on a podcast and my son has been bullied. So, um, so bad at school and was hospitalized and on medication and his therapist said he couldn't do anything. What can you do? And then when we're able to connect people like that with actual hope, you know, and then they go and like that kid who was bullied is actually living a happy, productive life again, you know, whereas before, you know, who knows where he would have ended up. You know, I, I used to be on the, the side where in law enforcement, where I used to have to Baker act these kids and it's all trauma. You know, it's it's the reactions to trauma, and it is an easy system to actually Baker Act a kid. A lot of people don't realize once a child makes a statement, as long as an adult heard it and repeats it back to law enforcement, they're kind of compelled at that point to to take them into into uh, protective custody and and drop them off at a receiving facility. What happens if we can change all of that? What can we do um, if we can impact in the lives of the kids before they get to? the army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, or law enforcement, or a firefighter. You know, we can make significant impacts in our future societies with some of these processes. So yeah, we ended up developing our, our own resiliency coaching model. And our, our goal is to get as many resiliency coaches trained so that it can be done on a peer-to-peer -peer application. It doesn't have to be 
um, veteran going to a therapist. You know, it now can be a veteran going to a veteran or a police officer going to another police officer or a firefighter going to a firefighter. You know, uh, we were we were asked by the Florida Sheriff's Association in Florida to con- to do some online training for PTSD. So we're, we're developing a training platform that's going to be visible to 23,000 deputy sheriffs and detention deputies in Florida. At the end, we get to promote what we're doing and say, oh, by the way, if you're struggling, and you don't want your bosses to know, give us a call. We'll take care of it. And then you just go right back to work. So that's us. That's us in a nutshell. Um, you know, our, my why in life is to find a better way and share it. And we've done that with some of these processes. And we're just challenging the status quo. Uh, we get a lot of resistance and a lot of friction from the licensed mental health world. They don't believe the processes work. And the only thing I can tell them is, well, then just get out of the way while we get it done. So that's kind of us in a nutshell. Beautiful. So I think an important point that I hear over and over again is that, as you said, you you had resistance from some of the, the mental health practitioners that are out there. What I see is... It's not give a man a fish, it's teach a man a fish. So, you know, it. what might work for one person isn't going to work for another person. So that's why it's important to have a gamut of, you know, therapies out there. One person might relate to equine, one might be diving, one might be EMDR, one might be uh, MDMA, you know, psychotherapy. But the fact that we have all those, people are then able to find what they can relate with. Because as you said, 90% is beautiful, but that's 10% that didn't work. So they obviously need somewhere else or a different, you know, different angle to approach. But the fact that you have have so much success is another very powerful tool for people listening to be able to go and see if they're one of the people that it would work with. Can I just jump in a little bit and talk about the the reason the organization only had a 90% success is um, some people did not complete the study. But what they found was everyone that completed the process 100% of them were able to resolve their trauma. And so kind of what we've done is we've also um, been gathering a lot of our own research on our process with the zero content. And we've had three studies going. One's complete. We called it the testing the model. And it was with 100 clients. And 100 clients average score on the PSSI-5, which is the post-traumatic stress disorder symptom scale interview. If you score between 20 and 80, uh, you're clinically diagnosed with PTSD. And that that group averaged about 54.5 points. And what that means is most of them had between three or four disruptions a week in their quality of life, whether it's nightmares, flashbacks, intrusive thoughts. And with the one to four sessions, uh, 41% only needed one session. And the remainder, we only had 1%. One, one Marine needed four, and the others were in the two to three category. But all of them, 100% of them, average score after the treatment was 2.25. What that means is they're barely having any kind of symptomology whatsoever. And we're trying to replicate those studies. And we've got two groups. We've got one uh, group of mental health counselors. Their numbers are already in. We're just doing the, um, all the, the uh, what do they call that? The analytical review of it. And their, their hundred clients are also at a hundred percent. And in the peer world, we're a little bit lagging behind because we have to actually find our our clients where they're kind of in a captive audience. So we're about 65% complete. And the thing is, is these processes are developed in ways that as long as you do the visual formats as instructed, doing the black and white imagery, the picture at the beginning and a picture at the end, 
um, is working at the root, which is subconsciously. And then the rewind is when the amygdala releases the emotion because you're basically uh, tricking that part of the brain into thinking that you're ending on the good part. And then the brain's like, well, no, that's not what the prop purpose of this is. And that's when the emotions released and then the memories reconsolidate. So um, we're going to have 300 cases and we're going to have hundred percent success in all of them. So the key is it won't work with everybody. And, and the reason we say that is because there are people that will not go through it. So that's not going to work for them. Um, but as long as the people go through it and we're talking post-traumatic stress, it'll work. It's I've not seen a failure yet. I've done it personally myself with about 75 people and I've yet to have one not have a significant reduction in symptoms that would bring them below the threshold for PTSD. That's the other resistance part. It sounds way too good to be true. Yeah. I'd like to jump in and kind of build upon what Dan's talking about. And it seems like the only thing that gets in people's way from it not being hundred percent successful is if people are going to overanalyze it and overthink it, because like you said, it sounds too good to be true. And it doesn't seem real, especially for people who've tried everything, you know, the last 20, 30 years or, or their whole life or whatever it's been. But as long as you have the rapport built and you have the trust and you are willing to do it, if you want to let go of the trauma and the physical symptoms that are coming from it, it is working 100% of the time. And this is, I mean, I've worked with a couple, Dan has done way more than me, but I work with two firefighters that I used to work with that are taking off the truck for PTSD and they're now back on the truck, took two sessions each. But we worked through childhood stuff and calls they went on. One guy went on his sixth drowning and he was like, he said he froze up and then he was taken off the truck. Um, but it even worked on a, a lady uh, um, that I came across. She's a coach. And for the first 15 years of her life, she said she experienced severe emotional, physical, sexual, and psychological abuse. She said she thought she was going to die on a regular basis. And then she finally ran away she was, when she was 15. But she's 37 now and she's been extreme panic, extreme anxiety, can't get out of her house. She lives alone. I only trust her sister like her entire life. And the way the process works, you can bookend the, the different, the, the trauma. And so you could do a single incident on a day, but with her, we just did it the whole 15 years, the end point at the end of the 15 years when she was dancing in her living room and the beginning point when she was like six months old in her, in her crib. And in one session, literally in one 90 minute session, without even me, me knowing any more about the trauma that the other than what I just described right there, we wiped it off the map. And she went from 10 out of 10 extreme panic, extreme anxiety, extreme fear to zeros across the board. And, and so it just speaks to the power of this, what this, what this does and how d- versatile it is, whether it's a single trauma, a childhood, multiple traumas, or just a big chunk of time for a lot of military guys. I know Dan has done a lot of like full deployments, like a six month deployment. You do the whole thing and rewrite the whole thing. Um, and, and so I just want to add that in there. It's just incredibly powerful. But as long as you are willing to trust, you have the rapport with the person that you're working with and you want to let it go, you want to have your life back, this thing works. Beautiful. Well, staying with you, Jesse, I'd love to kind of, you know, lead you through. So we left at you were going to join the Marines. So just as Dan did, kind of walk me through from there to, you know, your own um, discovery of the techniques that work for you and finally got you back to where you wanted to be. Absolutely. So the Marines was like my focus. I just had to get the Marines. I, um, I remember I went in my 
must have been my junior year. I signed up in the, the delayed entry program my junior year. And I went into the recruiter's office and I, I said, I want to be a grunt. I want to be in the infantry. And I was just, you know, a junior high school punk. And the guy was the recruiter, his staff sergeant. He was a uh, infantry man. And he's like, oh, you think you want to be infantry? And I like looked at my dad and I was like, yeah, I think so. And uh, he's like, well, if you think so, you're not going to make it or whatever. But either way, I um, cleaned it up. I graduated early from high school, shift, shipped off to, to the, uh, the Marines. And um, my experience was, was overall really good. I mean, I left, I think just like the typical, like leaving your family at such a young age in January, most, it's mostly like older like 20s, 20s and above, which is kind of a big deal for an 18-year-old, I guess. But I transitioned into that. I got to my unit. I became a machine gunner, 0331 infantry machine gunner. And I was like, damn, this is badass. Um, and went on my, I, like, I was ready for war. I feel like if you sign up after 9-11, which is what prompted mine and, and Dan's and, and a lot of people who sign up in this generation, like you go because you want to go to war. You're ready to go to war. And I wanted to go to war. Um, but my, my first two deployments were to the the Middle East, or excuse me, Southeast Asia on Muse. So I, I went on two of these Mu deployments, and to get you all get your hopes all worked, get you all worked up, make you feel like you're going to go to a combat. You're deploying, doing your workup, um, and you go went to Japan, went on the 31st Mu, floated it around, and there was a huge tsunami in in Burma, 2008, and we just set off the, and it killed like 100,000 people. Um, and we were sending supplies in on, on on the Mu, but we didn't really go in and do anything else. They wouldn't allow us allow us in. Um, but I was able to build a sort of reputation. Like I'm a big guy. Like I don't take a lot of shit. And I um, came out of that uh, a, a squad leader. So I came out of my first appointment a squad leader. I was meritorious, promoted. I was a Marine of the Quarter. And um, I started to kind of take a leadership position. I had a, had a just like Mr. Blue kind of took me under his wing. I had a, well, my platoon commander, Lieutenant Muse, did the same thing. And he saw something in me. I remember he took me and another guy over one time after at a training event. He said, people are looking up to you. You need to pay attention. You need to take this seriously, and you need to, you know, make something of this. And so, I took that seriously, and I and I really re- appreciated that. And I stepped into this leadership position, and it really served me well. I went to machine gun leaders course, and I was able to, uh, you know, it was hard. It was like balancing because I went in with, with these guys, and now I'm leading them. But some of them had been in longer than me, and I'm, most all of them were older than me. Like there was a guy in my squad that was like 27, and I'm like a 20 year old guy, you know, trying to deal with those dynamics. And so it was, it was challenging, but it was also really rewarding. And I kind of stepped into that position and went on my second deployment. Another time um, on Muse, we actually set off the coast of, um, of Yemen in, in 2009. And there was a underwear bombing and Fort Hood, or the Fort Hood shooting. They were both talking to clerics in, in Yemen and we ended up going and they were doing stuff off of that that we're probably not supposed to talk about or no one knows about or whatever. Um, so we, so we stayed on the ship and just was Sparrowhawk for special forces and, and, um, just kind of did our thing there, but then on the way back. And so again, I guess I speak into like the, the, the buildup and this whole time I'm staying focused, we're going to Afghanistan. I wanted to be where the action was at. I was, I was really set on that because this is why I signed up. Like, this is what I believed I was supposed to do. And, um, finally on the way back from the second deployment, they said they were taking, it was in 2010 and they were doing a big troop surge in Afghanistan. And so they were taking our company on this. If you volunteered, you had to volunteer to go on this deployment. Once we got back, you do a quick shot at home where you're going to um, do like your, your leave 
spend time at home. We're going to pack up. We're going right to Afghanistan at the end of May. So we got back in April, boots on the ground in April and cleaned up. I went home, got in a fight, got arrested. The next week I got, I got beat up. So I, I kind of re- almost missed my chance to go to Afghanistan because I had a broken nose and fractured orbital. And uh, yeah, I just started to realize some things about myself there. Almost missed my shot. But then in May, we went to, May of 2010, went to Afghanistan, spent time in Marsha. And, um, you know, it was crazy because anytime we go south, or east, two to 300 meters, we get shot at. And there was an IED cell below us. One of our guys stepped on a pressure plate, lost his leg. And um, to the east, one of the guys got shot with a, a sniper round. Um, and we were getting into contact any time. I remember actually, I actually remember the first time I, I shot back. Because when we were driving through and, and some of the, the different patrols we were on, it was, you get shot from the, the tree line and then you would like look over there and they're like, there's nothing to shoot at. And then they'd be gone. You wouldn't get heard from again. So it was just a constant, it was like frustrating. And it sounds like what Dan was talking about with the, the, the direct contact in Iraq and then the indirect in Afghanistan. That's what we experienced too. Um, but I remember the, the first time we were patrolling across a field and in formation and pa, 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 and we started getting shot at. And I remember running over to a canal and, and, put it down and I was a machine gunner. So I had the big gun and then I was had a 240 and I blasted this, this 240 in the tree line where we got shot from. And, um, I was like, shit, man, it's go time. And like every infantryman is like, you want to know how you perform under combat. So it's almost like I took a, a, a breath of fresh air, like shit, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't bitch out. I like sat down and I, I, I did what I was supposed to do. And then the, I, I kind of held, position for the rest of the guys who were in the open field to come across. And, um, we ended up finishing out that, that mission. And, um, you know, it's crazy because then we went back, we got back to our patrol base after a little bit of contact. Um, and they brought a, an eight year old boy into the patrol base where we were staying at. And, uh, he had been shot with seven, uh, seven, six, two caliber round. And so 7.62, like all the M16s, and 4s were 5.56, smaller caliber round. I was the only one with a machine gun or at least a 240 on that patrol. Um, so either a 7.62 coming from my gun or an AK-47, which is common for the, the Taliban and the insurgents that we were dealing with over there, uh, is where that bullet came from. So it was a weird dynamic that I always played with for, for really a long time because here I am, I'm feeling good. Like I, I, I showed up for my guys. And I showed up on this patrol, was able to finally initiate contact on these guys back. And now here I am, they're bringing in a uh, dad's bringing in his eight year old boy. And so then he, he got shot and it was with the seven, six, two round. Um, so I don't I never really got any, any closure. I've let that go, but it's like, it was just a really confusing time. And then, and you know, um, just kind of my childhood and, and what really saved my life. Um, it was just such an interesting sort of way to in that. And either way we ended up our, our deployments in Afghanistan in, in October, it sucked. It was, it was so hot. It was so miserable in the, in the desert. And uh, we actually lost two guys to heat casualties, um, you know, and then two guys to, to contact. But then we were, we, we were in Camp Dwyer, the, the main base, getting ready to leave once we packed up and left. Um, and in that two-week time frame, the unit that replaced us, they had 12 casualties. They had eight guys that got hit. Um, they were catastrophically injured and then four guys who were killed. And so I don't know what it was about, uh, but, uh, about our, 
about our unit. I don't know if it was a discipline or, or, or we got lucky or what it was, but we, we did fairly well. And then the guys that came in after their, their Marines as well, they came in, they got hit hard. Um, so we were in a pretty kinetic, kinetic environment. We ended up well. Um, but coming back off of that third deployment, fresh out of combat, I, I separated in January of 2011, actually it's the fifth. I mean, it's almost been 10, 10 years. Exactly. I got my, I got out early cause of my leave and everything else. I'm off about almost 10 years ago to the day. Um, but I was, I was headstrong, fresh out of combat. I was feeling like a badass, and I, I think my, my plan, like when we were separating from, from the Marines, like it was just like a common thing that they just like talk about, like all the things that you can do to, to get money and disability and you can just go home and then collect unemployment and, um, do all these different things to like to almost do nothing with your life after that. Like as if your life is done after you end your service. And I was like, I was eating that up. I was like, okay, I'll go home and I'll collect unemployment. I'll smoke some weed and I'll maybe go to community college and I'll just figure out what comes next. And that was pretty much my mindset getting out of the military, but it lasted for about a month. And I, uh, I, I felt pretty hard. I struggled, started to struggle with all these things inside of me. Like I, none of my friends knew what the hell was going on. Um, you know, I was, I was getting, I was angry. I was pushing people away that, that cared about me. I remember my, like my brother, my younger brother, and, um, just like really doing some damage to like relationships. And I had no idea what I was doing or what was going on inside of myself. And then I started to get into drugs a bit and still anger, anxiety is coming up for me. And, um, I was fortunate enough, uh, in May of that year, I was able to get into school that provided some structure and a sense of sort of sense of purpose and, um, got back in the gym. I got on the rug on the rugby team and got, got something going for myself. And I, I think that's the, th the thing that I found that I missed the most. And I think a lot of the veterans, when they lose their way out of the military is they lose the sense of purpose, the clear structure that the military military provides and the, the band of brothers, you know, the camaraderie, the connection, um, to each other and to that higher purpose. And I, I lost all those things, but built them up with school and exercise. And I started to get into yoga and some of these different things kind of mastering my body. Uh, but I was fortunate enough to go to Lima, Peru on a volunteer trip in January of 2013. So two years after I separated and that, that trip was, uh, has changed my life forever. And I went down there thinking about how, you know, I'm coming in, I'm this Marine Corps vet. I've traveled the world, going to school. Um, and, and I'm just going to go down there and help, help these kids. And I was going to work at an orphanage in Villa El Salvador, one of the city's poorest districts. And I got down there and uh, thought I was going to help these kids. And then after two weeks of playing with these kids who were playing with sticks and balls in the dirt, it was clear that they helped me and they changed me. They, they pushed me. Well, they, they made me start to question my life and my upbringing and what I thought was most important, my values. You know, I'm seeing these kids with sticks and balls in the dirt and they're the happiest kids I've ever met. And then I hear I'm going back, back here to the States and I'm, I'm miserable. I'm around a bunch of miserable people who have quote, everything they've ever wanted and, and all these material possessions. And it started to shift something inside of me. Um, but either way, that experience led to me just getting a bunch of volunteering of hundreds of hours of volunteer experience at everywhere from the Phoenix Children's Hospital and the All College Playroom to a, a grief camp for kids to working for, for three years as a youth mentor for two troubled boys.
So I started to carry on this sort of legacy that Mr. Blue had instilled in me and just give back to these people. And that, that action, that, that, that forward momentum, that really the trip that initiated it all, it, it, it changed my life. It saved my life. And it, it led me down this path of like service over self. Like, what does that mean? It's kind of these empty words, but it's like, I'm going to go out there when I don't feel like it. And I'm going to volunteer, or I'm going to go to this grief camp for kids whose, whose parents have committed suicide in front of them or whatever it was that they were there for. And I'm just going to be there for them. And, um, that was a powerful experience for me. And I was, I decided to move to Arizona go to Arizona State University and get my, my undergrad degree doing all this volunteering. And, and, um, finally in, in, uh, June, January, 2014 is when I got picked up with the Mesa fire department. I got picked up with, uh, with Mesa fire and, um, you know, here I was, I was now on my, my dream career. I was, um, I was, I was making stuff happen and it was, it was, it was, Interestingly, looking back, it was uh, a strange time for me because I had what I wanted, but I was deeply unhappy. But I continued to volunteer, and that and that ultimately saved my life. And I thought about this idea of, you know, veterans coming out of the military and they're losing this sense of purpose, this structure, this connection to something bigger than themselves and the people who care about them. And then I thought about myself as a a troubled boy, and what what helped me, what what really saved my life, Mister Blue, and the, someone who cared about me. And then I thought about my experience volunteering in Peru and like what that did for me. And so that sort of started growing this idea. And I was into fitness probably because Mr. Blue. And so I started to work out, you know, I was working all the time. And I thought about this idea about, you know, bringing these two groups of people together. Veterans struggling to find their purpose in, as they transition and, and these troubled kids and the power that they would, they would have together and how they could help each other. And um, I dove in headfirst on that. I forgot off my probationary year as a firefighter. I uh, started this nonprofit, Call Fit Complete. And, uh, you know, I, I literally thought my whole life was preparing me for it. I was, um, I mean, I went full steam in this thing and I was, I was getting podcasts and, and newspaper articles and all these different meetings. I was putting a board of directors together, but all the while I was working at one of the busiest, the 16th busiest ladder truck in the country in 2016, ladder 201 in, in Mesa. And, you know, we're going on three, four, five calls a night sometimes, and I'm getting up the next day instead of going home and, and resting. I'm, I'm going on to meetings and I'm doing work on this nonprofit. And I started to get, I started to get burnt out. And this was early in in the summer of uh, 2017. But I also started to just like before get get called up to these sort of leadership positions and um, get noted noticed for some things. And um, that all sort of culminated in me being recognized in September of 2017 as a state firefighter of the year. You know, I, I set. Like when I first got the word, I just like really sat back and I was like, damn, I can't believe it. You know? So it was a really surreal experience. And, um, you know, here I am in at the state fire school speaking in front of hundreds of firefighters. Um, uh, I wrote a speech about a legacy and I wrote about a, the speech was about a man named Patty Brown, who was a captain at the New York city fire department on nine 11. It's a man that I look up to, you know, my, my, my uh, hero of mine, my childhood hero. And I'm, I'm, writing about a legacy and a legacy isn't written in how you die. It's written in how you live. And it was here. I was living this, this life, you know, everything I'd ever wanted. Had my dream girl, had my dream job. I was a firefighter of the year. I felt like I was the, the pinnacle of the profession and, you know, and everyone was taking photos of me and all this sort of stuff. I was speaking in front of hundreds of firefighters, but about a month later, it all caught up with me. And it caught with me hard. 
And this was stuff that dealing, dealing with my childhood stuff to military stuff to the, the, the suicides and overdoses that were going on and all the, the things you see as a firefighter. And actually my, my best friend from the Marines died of a heroin overdose in 2016. And so now here I'm going on heroin overdoses, thinking about my best friend and I'm struggling. And I started to, um, I was, I was having a hard time with, I was basically popping Ritalin to, to keep me moving. That's how I managed to not sleep and, and smoking weed at night to calm me down. And that caught up with me hard. And then in October, 2017, my older brother's cancer started to get worse. My mom's childcare that she started up when I was a kid ended up having to close abruptly. She lost her job. And those things hit wreck, you know, hit me in my, you know, right in my heart. My, my family was like getting torn apart. My brother had now been struggling for 20 years with a terminal disease. Um, and he's getting worse. And then in October of 2017, there was a machine gun shooting at a country music concert in Las Vegas, Nevada. And that set me back hard because I was a machine gunner and I've shot machine guns at other people. And I love going to music festivals. And now here I am watching a man shoot a machine gun. And I remember hearing, it was, it was hearing the sound the of the machine gun on the news or a YouTube video or whatever. I was like, holy shit. Like, what are we doing here? And it just set me back hard. And uh, I just crumbled, became a, just a, a broken man. And I decided that I need to pull the brakes on the nonprofit and that crushed me. And I was like, this is my, this is my way out. You know, this is, this is my life. This, I can do something positive for the world. Cause my whole life I'm feeling like a failure. You know, I, I, ever since I was a kid gotten kicked out, I was written off as a failure and you know, the Marine Corps gave me the structure, the discipline, the system purpose. And now I'm out, I've, I've lost it, but I, I found it again and now I don't have it. And it's, it's vanished before my eyes and I crumbled into a really dark place. Uh, and I started having suicidal thoughts. And then I realized that I was having the same suicidal thoughts that I had when I was a seventh grade boy. And that if I didn't change my life, if I didn't make a decision, a different decision to do something different with my life, then this would be my destiny. And these cycles were repeating my life and then I had to break them. And, uh, you know, I mean, I was, I was a firefighter of the year and I was smoking weed at work. You know, and, and so I was, I was struggling a lot and my, 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 my relationships were on the thread. Just, it, it all came to a T and I crumbled and I was like crying on the floor and like at the, I would go to the gym and I'd just sit there and cry and I'd come home and I'd, I'd sit on the floor and cry. And finally my, my now wife, she came in and, and she's like, what is wrong with you? Like you need help. We're about breaking up like every other day fighting. I'm smoking weed, trying to justify why I should smoke weed because it's helping me, but it's really not. It's holding me down. And, and all this stuff. And, and finally, I went and, and started to, to see a therapist um, and, and sort of talk about some different things. Um, but that, that decision point, I mean, actually, we just passed New Year's. And, and, and so I went through that for, the, for the, the next few months. And then finally, I started to think about Peru. And actually, I've been really, I've been thinking about it a lot since I, I had to think about it every day, pretty much since 2013. Now here in 2017, and I'm, you know what, there was something those kids taught me that was really powerful. And there was something about the way that they lived their life and what I learned about how we could live life if we wanted to. Um, and I started to talk to my girlfriend, you know, what do you think about going to travel? You know, and, and she had some friends that were living in Costa Rica. And so we were kind of talking and stuff. And I think a lot of people talk about it. Like they want to, you know, make go travel the world. Okay. But it's like a lot of empty words and our dreams are someday. And, and I'm like, no, like, what do you think about going to travel? Uh, what do you think about going to Costa Rica? You know, your roommates are down there. 
And then on New Year's Eve going into 2018, I just decided, I, I declared, I'm moving to Costa Rica. I'm going to Costa Rica. And I told some of the guys that I work with that um, we, were, we were talking about some, some um, just plans, however, and I just like, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm doing this. My, my best friend, his name was Paul. They died of a heroin overdose the year before. He always said, don't think about it. Just do it. Which probably got me in trouble a lot. And he always said, don't talk about it. Be about it. And I was like, I'm going to be about this. I'm going to do this thing. And um, I'll, uh, I'll close off the story, the, the story there. But I mean, it landed on, we went on this journey now where we made the decision and then Jessica and I, we went through this back and forth, like how we're going to make it. She went back to school and all these sort of things happened. But once we committed, once we decided this was going to happen, all the pieces started to fall into place. And we started selling all our stuff, you know, selling clothes and useless junk that we didn't know we had and all these random things. And then it landed up in, in June of that year sold my car two weeks before I left. Everything was working out perfectly. We we're going to go to Costa Rica, become English teachers. I had signed up and I was going to go to grad school online while we traveled. And we bought a, I took a one-way ticket to Costa Rica on June 26th of 2018. And um, that was like jumping off a cliff with a parachute, having no idea where I'm going to land. And um, like sometimes it was, I mean, we could speak for hours about the incredible ex experiences, Colombia and Costa Rica for four months and Peru. We backpacked through Europe for eight months. We were actually able to end our trip getting engaged in front of the Eiffel Tower, you know, and it was just such an incredible thing um, to experience, but it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows and, and beautiful sunsets. Like it was, it was a really challenging time. And I was fortunate enough to have some really incredible experiences working with different people in different traditional ways of healing. And um, yeah, I mean, went on this, this freaking roller coaster ride or jump off this, like I was like hang gliding. I went hang gliding in Colombia when I was there. It's like, that's what it was for like two years straight. No idea where I was going to land. And then crazy as hell, I was supposed to go to Africa and hike Kilimanjaro and live in Bali last summer because of coronavirus, we canceled that trip. And we decided we'd come. My dad recently moved to Lakeland, Florida. And we decided we'd come here to Lakeland, Florida and, and, you know, we landed, you know, we landed here. It's been a hell of a ride, but we've, all these things that have been happening now, we met Dan and what they're doing with 220 and um, it's play, starting to play a huge role in our life. We're making an, it's such an incredible thing. So I guess that's a bit about my journey. Um, and yeah, James, I'll take it over to you. Beautiful. Well, thank you. So, so what, you know, obviously what we got from Dan's story was, you know, the effectiveness that the EMP and TRP have had with, you know, the people he's worked with. Um, did you actually find him through that? Was that a therapy that you had a breakthrough yourself and that's why you aligned so closely with them? So, no, not necessarily. And so I, um, I would say that, that I think that's important too. And when I think about like what helped me, because a therapist did help me, but a co coaches have helped me and so have mentors. And then so has, when I think about my, my journey, whether it's a, a struggling kid, literally like, you know, suicidal, digging a wrist or a knife into my wrist, which when I was dead as a, as a seventh grade boy, getting kicked out of my home. What saved me then was a, a, a coach, a mentor in this case, a mentor and a, a calling, you know, the 9-11 happened and I was like, this is my path. 
And then I, I moved forward in my life. And when I was transitioning out of the, out of the military, I, I came across a coach for the first time. And then again, this coach pointed me in the right direction. That's why I was able to go down to, to Peru. And this idea of creating something or serving something larger than myself came up again. And I said, that's where the volunteer came in, came in for me. And then again, when I was, when I was 28 years old, the firefighter of the year, smoking weed at work. And I realized that I had to make a difference in my life. It, it was again, a coaching and a calling to save my life. And it's really, I, it set me in and that's why I became a coach. So I can be of service to others and others in their time of need. It's why I went to grad school. So I feel like I can grow in that way. And, and the, I ended up going on that trip, but it's like the recurring theme in my life was a coach and a calling, whether in the form of a mentor, an actual coach, or even a therapist in, in, in some cases, like getting out of my own way and asking for help and, and doing that, it saved me. Um, and, and so did this always needing something larger than myself to serve. Because if I feel like shit, I want to get out of bed, then I'm gonna feel sorry for myself and not get out of bed. I'll smoke some weed or drink or whatever I need to do to, to, to stay feeling sorry for myself. But if there's something bigger than me that I'm committed to, whether it's a business or, or um, a trip or a family or anything, a, a kid who has no one who cares about him, that, is, that has been my journey. Um, and so therapy helped for me. And then I did um, ayahuasca and DMT while my, my travels and I was able to experience these sort of mystical, these really powerful, these powerful, emotional, spiritual cleansing experiences. And those started to shape things for me. Um, and so I did a lot of work, a lot of um, with the therapist, but then on my own sort of spiritual journey on my trip and just what I was able to see by myself. And I, I dove in really hard on understanding myself, self-awareness. I came across a thing that said self-awareness is the predictor of number one predictor of success. You know, it's because if you know what's going on, you know how you're feeling, what you're thinking, then you have an opportunity you're not guaranteed, but you have an opportunity to make some changes in your life. And so I started to realize that if I am going to cultivate this sense of self-awareness about myself and get feedback from my, um, you know, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, then I was on onto something. But I came back and, and then this, let's see, this spring of last year of, of 2020, a lot of like, well, I need to back up a little bit because I came back from my trip after 10 months of rod and I went back to my back to Iowa where I grew up and my, my family, I, the reason I came back is my brother who now 22 years had been struggling with his, with this disease. He was starting to get worse, like seriously worse. It was this roller coaster of, is, is he going to get better? You know, is he, is he not? And, and it was just always this guessing game, but something shifted inside of me. I've been traveling, I've been healing and I, I came back and um, I just knew something was, was going to, I need to, I said, I, I, I knew I need to be back. I, I remember I told Jessica that we need, we need to go back. And, um, I came back and, and then J July, 2019, my brother finally passed away after, after 22 years. And, but the whole while going up to the, up to that, I was like, I felt like I was going back to my family and I was like, how to go slay a dragon. I don't know. I kept saying that. Like, I didn't understand it, but I felt like a lot of anxiety. I felt a lot of like, well, looking back now, I know all the childhood stuff that I never dealt with. That I was able to break free from, give a little bit of release from on my trip, but I, I still never had addressed it. And so I went back and my family dynamics were, were very challenging. My brother was, was, was getting worse and I was having like a lot of anger and frustration and resentment building up for my family um, and how I was kind of, I felt like abandoned as a kid. And then um, that carried on through the rest of until 2020. 
when I, I did a lot of like inner deep inner work with my own coaches, with the different groups of people that I've worked with. Um, and then I, um, came to Lakeland and I had now been on my journey. I struggled with anger, anxiety, PTSD, substance abuse. I'd done all these things. I'd seen the world and, and um, no one, I'm a, uh, I'm a coach, I'm a professional coach and I help people rebuild their life and, and, and overcome overwhelm, anxiety, fear, and build their best life. And now I'm landed here in Lakeland, Florida and looking for something more, another way. And I think Jessica talked to you first, Dan, and she's like, told me then later that night, like, Oh my God, you gotta talk to Dan now because we're very in alignment on the things we're working on. And we're all, we're both here. A lot of us, you know, there's so many people out there that are just looking to bring real solutions to problems instead of treating symptoms and throwing medications and, and all these other things at things we're getting to the root cause. And so I'm all about this. And, and uh, we, we talk a lot about disrupting these things, Dan and I do. And um, it's just a natural alignment after all these things that we've been on, we land here in Lakeland, Florida. And I think it's just, I don't want to think too much about it. I don't need to know how everything works in the world, in the universe, but um, I'm here for a reason. Dan's here for a reason. We're having this conversation for a reason. And so I, that's how I ended up here in Lakeland, Florida. We were hang gliding for two plus years and, and, and now we're here. Beautiful. Well, bringing Dan back in, um, you know, Jesse obviously mentioned about, you know, the everything else outside the therapies. And I found that altruism is absolutely one of the most healing things over and over again, the same way as childhood trauma is from the negative side, when people are able to find a way to give back. And obviously, many of the men and women listening to this are in professions where they do give back, but we also get paid to do that. So when they find themselves in even more of a selfless arena, not only are they doing good in the world, but it's obviously very healing for them as well. So Dan, tell me about you know the other elements of 22-0. What made you start it and then all the other kind of uh, coaching and other facets to what you offer? So uh, a lot of what you're talking about there, you know, Victor Frankel, uh, Victor Frankel was a uh, survivor of Auschwitz. He was a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist. And he calls that logos therapy. And when you find a purpose that actually is productive and, and good for you and it's good for other people, uh, that's a very powerful uh, way of, of, of self-healing. Um, I was tired of losing friends, right? That was my big thing. I, I By the time I'd heard about our fifth suicide from our company, you know, it's like something has got to change. And we're talking young, healthy, um, high-performing soldiers are coming home and they disconnect, right? They disconnect from their tribe. They're, they're like exiled into a civilization that doesn't understand them. And so part of our purpose is, is to stop that epidemic of suicide, not only for the veterans, but first responders as well, because we're losing more first responders to suicide than line of duty deaths every single year. And so we're on this mission to help reconnect people with that higher purpose. Um, that's why Jesse and I are like, you know, peanut butter and jelly. We, we just, we totally mesh. Um, you know, I'm a disruptor. He's a disruptor. And we're, we're taking um, a real solution to a problem. All right. The, the problem is, is suicide. All right. The, what's putting people there for majority of suicides is trauma. So we're getting to that root cause. We're getting to the, 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 the healing of the subconscious is where everything is just kind of embedded. 
And when you, when you watch somebody like, for example, Kian, he's one of our coaches in Iowa, you know, guy reaches out, he's on his last leg. He doesn't know what else to do. And I, I, all I did was look at his area code and the other area code. And I said, well, let's see how close you guys are. And they ended up next day meeting because they're only 20 minutes apart. And this guy was shooting methamphetamines for a good part of 10 years, army vet. Right. And meth was his way to, to stop or to keep from killing himself. And, you know, Kian helps this guy, like literally clears uh, significant trauma, uh, significant negative emotions. And then the next day, this guy wakes up and he calls Kian. He said, this is the first time in a decade I haven't felt the need to get high. And then he does a little bit more work with him. It clears some more emotions and another trauma. And then 10 days later, the guy runs into his meth dealer. And the dealer's like, hey, you want some some dope? And the guy says, no, I'm good. I don't need it anymore. So you got a guy that walks away from a meth habit. His whole family get disintegrated. He lost his wife, his relationship with his kids. But now we're putting the pieces back together. And the purpose is, hey, now let's connect this guy with a purpose. Let's connect him with a new mission. So what we're trying to do is gather a bunch of men and women who have put that uniform on for a purpose bigger than self to become part of this, this movement of, of healing the hero, because that's our battle cry and give them a new purpose. Uh, for me, it's absolutely addictive when I see the release, when I, when I see them go from a 10 to a zero and, and I, and they start yawning because they just went parasympathetic. They just went into that rest phase. They're exhausted and you know, they're about to have the best sleep they've had in years. That to me is what's rewarding. That's, um, that to me is, is my paycheck is to see the, the, the reaction on the other end of the process. And, and we're getting a lot of people that we're working with who now want to become part of the solution. You know, it's to give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day, teach a man a fish and he'll eat for a lifetime. You know, we can be the solution to our own stuff, you know, um, without any of the content, without talking about any of the trauma, you know, you can sit there and, and walk somebody through this process and never know what they're working on. Yeah, that's the amazing part. And I think that's the reason why we have such high success is everybody finishes the work because they don't have to talk about it. And, and to get to literally the root problem and fix that root problem and then reconnecting them with a purpose, you know, and everybody that I clear, I'm like, look, all right, you didn't pay for your treatment, but this is what I want from you. I want you to send me three more people, you know, and then we get people looking for people who need this. So we get a lot of friends, you know, you, you, you clear one guy of PTSD and then all of a sudden he's talking to his buddies and say, hey, you need to call this dude like yesterday, you know, and then we're able to connect with those people, you know, and eventually we'll hit that critical mass. You know, in America, we have probably between nine and 11 million people that are clinically diagnosed with PTSD, nine to 11 million people. So that's not veterans. That's not first responders. That's all civilians in general, because we don't hold the, tr we don't hold a patent to it. So there's so many people that are in need of it. And then we get people that come through the process and then they get frustrated and angry after they're done. And they're like, I've been going to therapy for five years, you know, and you just did something in an hour or two hours or five hours that I've been spending thousands of dollars on. That's the disruption part of what we're doing. Us as an organization, we don't take a dollar from any of our clients. So if you're a veteran, first responder, doctor, nurse, paramedic, EMT, firefighter, active military, National Guard Reserve, we take zero for, from, the, from that individual and we take zero from their families. So we'll work with an entire family unit. And our return on investment is our end cost per treatment. 
So in 2020, we've cleared 975 people of post-traumatic stress. 975 people that had a diagnosis, no longer qualify for a diagnosis. And it only costs us about $40 a person. And that number will continue to drop with the more people that we get trained. And then the people that were trained this year and last year keep working. You know, our goal is to get that cost down to like less than five bucks a person. You know, so that's that's my disruption. I'm removing profit from the equation of the trauma. Uh, if you put a put a uniform on for a purpose bigger than yourselves, we don't want you to have to pay for it. You shouldn't have to. Society should take care of you. You know, because we're dealing with a lot of stuff nationally when it comes to law enforcement that is so extremely frustrating. The average person has no clue what it's like to go walk a beat or to, to, to patrol an area or to respond to calls day in and day out or to watch those um, kids dying in a car because a traffic crash happens or, you know, having to do CPR on somebody or, or losing an infant when you might have a child at home the same age. The average person is absolutely clueless what our first responders experience day in and day out. And now we're getting into, we have 16 active first responders who are trained to do our process. And we're getting ready to go out to Salt Lake City, Utah, and we're going to train about 25 of their peer support. Seminole County Florida Sheriff's Office, we've already met with them. We're going to train their peer support team, not only just for their department, but for the county. So we're looking at maybe 30 to 40 police officers, law enforcement officers in Seminole County. You know, we're going to do the same thing anywhere else we can, you know, because now, you know, it's amazing that I don't have to go tell my problem to a therapist. And with law enforcement officers, the big thing is the paper trail. You know, we're getting into some bigger churches where we can get some of their church counselors trained. So then we can start funneling people to them where it isn't going to cost you to get treated. And you don't have to have a paper trail to follow you back to the job. You know, that, that, that stigma that we attach to mental health um, is literally killing us. You know, suck it up. Suck it up. That's what, that's what we hear. That's what we say. I've said it myself while on active duty. You know, and then when you lose a guy to suicide, you know, then it's like the whole frame changes. Now it's real. Now it's personal. You know, so how do we do this to make this thing, you know, accessible and available to more people? You know, we've got to be able to, to train more people to do these processes. The problem will correct itself over time. You know, we get 10,000 people trained to do these processes nationally. You know, I got one counselor. She's on our board of directors. She's an Air Force veteran. We sponsored her to get trained in January of 2020. She worked with 204 people in a calendar year, 204 people that had PTSD no longer had PTSD. All right. So that's like $7 and 50 cents a person. And she never charged those people for that. Cause most of the people we were sending her, we were sending veterans and family members and, and kids. I think the youngest child that she'd worked with was four years old, you know, real people, real solutions, you know, and, and, and getting people out of their trauma, out of their emotions and into a purpose and a path and projecting them towards a goal versus away from the trauma. We're just cutting the anchor. We're dropping the anchor and we're getting these people back to being the people that they were meant to be. That's our mission. And that's, that's what we're doing. Um, you know, somebody out there who's struggling, send them to us. You know, they can contact us, our website, www.22zero.org. Uh, like I said, there's no cost to any veteran, any first responder, any active military, any nurse or doctor, corrections officer, 911 dispatcher, whatever you're, Whatever your purpose is, if you wear a uniform for that, for a specific purpose of being doing something better than yourself or bigger than yourself, uh, we will take care of you and we'll take care of your family and it won't cost you a penny.
Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. I think, I mean, people can just obviously tell based on your story, you know, staring at that rifle a few years ago and your passion now that, uh, you know, this is obviously a very powerful therapy. And, and like you said, the monetary value is very important as well. You know, I think that, you know, that's a real barrier to entry to a lot of these therapies and counseling sessions is the fact that insurance doesn't cover it. EAP is an absolute Russian roulette if you get the right person. So to have someone, you know, a therapy that, that military and first responders are standing behind that also is not going to break the bank really removes that barrier. Absolutely. Beautiful. Well, then just to close out with you, Jesse, um, tell me about the, the coaching sessions that you offer now as, as a side to uh, 220. Yeah, I'm helping re- people rebuild their life after trauma or transition. And um, I'm just, I'm giving back in the way that people have always given back to me. And I've also, so I have, my, my coaching company can be found at action-oriented.com. I believe that action is the greatest adversary of adversity. And I believe whatever you're going through, if you take action, you can move forward and, and you can start to change your life, rebuild your life. Um, so I have an online course, Final Stand for Freedom. Uh, maybe get add in the show notes. So we have $100 off to your to your your viewers. I'm also launching adventure travel retreats in Colombia in in March. Columbia is an incredible place. It's a, it's a incredible place to heal and connect and 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 start these things over again. So more information can be found on on the website under retreats uh, action-oriented.com. But yeah, I mean, I think coming with twenty two zero, like we're on a mission to help uh, a lot of people. And if people can just realize that a lot of these things that we were taught to think about and how we deal with things. I mean, I think a lot of men, especially in this service, the, the service profession and, and military and first responders, people listen to this, you know, they're going to think we, have, we were never given the tools how to deal with all parts of ourselves. So we just think we can plow through. I speaking from my own experience, like just plowing through life and trying to control everything and, and not knowing why I'm so anxious or, or angry or, or whatever. Like there are tools to help people overcome these things. So you don't have to be ran by anger or anxiety or trauma or you can sleep well. And I think that if we can just get this message out to enough people that there are very real tools in literally a single session, maybe up to three, we can eliminate the effects of, uh, of, of trauma and heal these people in a really powerful way without ever even having to talk about what happened. You know, there's a lot of shame, a lot of guilt um, around those things. We can clear out the shame and guilt and then not even have to talk about what had happened and then get rid of the trauma so they can go on and, and be there for their, their life and not have to drown in, in themselves in alcohol or smoke weed at work or whatever it is that's, that's going on. So um, my, my coaching is going and, and that's an option there. But with 22-0, if we can start to heal the hero and really get down and heal at the root cause instead of just treating symptoms or suppressing things and letting them run our life, we're onto something really powerful here. And um, as we can train more people and those people can pass on and they can step into that calling or that purpose larger than themselves in a real intangible way and trickle this down, I think there's a, a huge potential here to, to disrupt a lot of things, but also to make a really deep impact at the ground level on people that are in need. And there's a lot of people right now across the, across the world, but in the veteran community, first responder community that, that, that are in need. And that if they just willing to step up and, and make the call and reach out to 220 or myself, you know, these are free services and it's, it's that simple. So. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. I mean, you know, both your power, your stories are very powerful. Both your stories actually parallel, you know, with the, uh, you know, losing a sibling and, 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 
parents in the Navy and so many other, you know, areas of it. So it's, it's, it's incredible how you guys, uh, organically found each other at the right time. But I just want to thank you so much for telling your, you know, stories. I know it takes a lot of courage even to go there. Um, and then, you know, obviously thank you more so for what you're doing now. So I really appreciate you taking the time. James, thank you very awesome, much James. for having us on there. Appreciate it, buddy. Yeah, thanks for having us, man. It's been great.